0: Welcome to NC Retold, a place where we get to know North Carolina. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Corey George. Today's episode of NC Retold is brought to us by Pilot Surveying and Engineering, providing civil engineering and land surveying services across the Carolinas. Check them out on the web at www.pilotse.com. Our guest today is retired school teacher, 20-year North Carolina General Assembly veteran and high school football coach, legend, ladies and gentlemen, Coach David Diamond. Coach uh, Diamond, how are you doing today?
1: Thank you, Corey. I'm not sure I'm a legend, but uh, whatever.
0: <sighs> I, I would imagine locally people would agree to disagree. Well. When it comes to high school football coach in this area, I think everybody could identify with David Diamond.
1: Well, I've just been fortunate. I've been real lucky. Great community, uh, a supportive wife that allows me to do what I what I want to do. Right. Great, great students. Great players. Assistant coaches. Just, I mean, just real fortunate.
0: That's good to hear. So, tell me a little bit before we get started into some of the real questions. I got to ask one one question that I'm certain is going to be on everybody's mind. Why go for two every time? Uh that was on your license plate of your van for a long time, wasn't yes, it? Yes,
1: yes. I just felt like uh, if, even if you hit 50% of the two, you're 100% of the of the kicking. Uh, we we spent a lot of time working on our offense and defense and not enough time working on our specialty team stuff. Right. So I felt like this going for two all the time was uh, a good percentage.
0: Why do you think you didn't spend enough time on special teams?
1: Uh, several reasons. Probably because um, we had to work hard to be successful, and uh, we we uh, did not have enough staff to specialize in the early days. Now later on, right? Uh, we had some some really good staff members that could do could, could do special team stuff.
0: Okay. So so how did you get into coaching? What what I mean, you've been co- you coached for a long time, still coaching even after retiring from East Surrey at South Stokes now. I mean, what what got you into coaching?
1: Well, um, my father was, uh, when he came out of uh, World War II, he was a a high school coach and teacher. And we lived in numerous places. Uh, For instance, uh, Bob Jamison at Greensboro Grimsley, or Greensboro Senior at that point, my father assisted him. He was involved in the early beginnings of the uh, North Carolina Coaches Association, which is located in in Greensboro. Uh, We, back in those days, you only got paid for nine months. If it was a snow day, teachers didn't get paid for that. So uh, my dad was also driver's ed to supplement his income. And then we also traveled in the summertime and worked at different camps. So I reckon that his longest stint was at Statesville high school and, uh, he coached everything, every, every sport he coached. And, um, of course I was a gym rat. I went with him all the time, uh, to all the events to, uh, you know, Saturdays and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I can even remember, uh, at Statesville high school, they had these, uh, traveling, wrestling, uh, things that you have on TV now. And, and, uh, I remember going and watching them set up the ring and sitting there and watching. And Dad said, now, somebody's going to grab a chair and hit somebody. It's not real blood. It's ketchup they're using. <laughs> so uh, so it goes back a long ways. Uh, but uh, when, I, when I went to Wake Forest, um, I took a course called Theory of Coaching. I was uh, a history major and really thought I'd go into something like law or something. I didn't know what I was going to do, really. But uh, took a theory of coaching course, had to get permission because I was not a P major, and it just it just hit. And that's how I got involved in, in, got involved in coaching. I was lucky enough when I came out of Wake Forest, uh, I was actually running the recreation department in Pilot Mountain,
0: okay, and
1: uh, getting paid 75 dollars a week. We had $75 church. a week. That was great. We had church, slow pitch softball. <laughs> we would have a hundred, 120 kids a day at the old pilot mountain high school gym. We had a bumper pool table. We had ping pong table. Uh, my dad had worked there. He ran his athletic department off the three vending machines in the basement. He said he wow. used to make $600, 800 profit. And that was what he ran his, his, uh, eighth grade athletic program off. Of. But we wow. that during the summer. Um, Alex Gibbs from who was uh, the coach at Mount Air High School came down, and got me literally, and took me to Mount Airy. And uh, he, I remember sitting right sitting there. In well, we were standing in front of the old gym, which no longer exists. And there was a kid that walked across the parking lot, coming up, and and he said, "That's going to be your quarterback." Now that that guy's Ted Ashby. Now he's head of one of the big banks in Mount Airy, but that's going to be your JV quarterback. He knew exactly where everybody was. Now, this is 1968. He knew where everybody was, who had lifted that day, who was at the beach, everything in detail. And he sort of, you know, he got me uh, – he straightened me out more than once as, as a young young coach. Uh, of course, Alex later, I think his last coaching gig was with the uh, Texans, maybe somebody uh, in the NFL. He was the, he was the offensive okay, line wow. coach for John Elway when the Broncos won the – Wow, that's so, awesome. Yeah. Gibbs was the uh, zone-blocking guru.
0: Okay. Well, surely it's not hard to keep up with all your players now with all the social media, and I'm sure they're posting about what they're doing all the time.
1: I try to stay off of that. <laughs> I, I, sometimes that knowledge is, is too overwhelming, and sometimes you don't want to know what kids think. Yeah, probably not.
0: So you mentioned that you had moved around a bunch um, I mean, it sounds like you're not a, a officially from Pilot Mountain, but you've lived here for a long, I mean, a long, long time, right? Uh, I guess what, what brought you to Pilot Mountain? Was it East Surrey or one of the local coaching jobs or what officially made your family settle here in Pilot Mountain?
1: We went to um, – we were at Statesville and uh, my dad started helping Coach Virgil Yow. If you ever heard of Kay Yao, Debbie Yow, and those people, that's their second cousin, I believe, okay. Virgil Yowl.
0: I'm an NC State graduate, so he, shout out to you know,
1: you know the, the Yowls, yes. So uh, Virgil Yowl had been my dad's coach at High Point College. He ran Camp Playmore at Windy Hill, and we'd go down there. Mom would be, uh, uh, work in the cafeteria, and uh, Dad would be one of the instructors, and I'd get to be one of the, one of the campers. It was basically a basketball camp. And so while down there, Dad decided there was a job at Tabor City High School. So we lived in Tabor City for two years. We experienced Hurricane Hazel in 1954. We actually went down to the beach, drove along the front row of Myrtle Beach the day after hmm. Hurricane Hazel. I can still see it now. Gray, ugly ocean. Houses all over the place. Had to dodge them. Uh, people were looting before the National Guard had moved in. But that was hmm. – that was. Uh, an experience from Tabor City, we ended up coming to Pilot Mountain High School. And uh, Dad coached there. And um, the first eight years we were in Pilot Mountain, we lived in seven different houses because – Wow, you know, seven co- houses. You know, coaches don't uh, – you know, teachers don't make, make any money. And so you, you move around. with the best deal. And while we were here, um, we had uh, Camp Wilson – which was, uh, it's, a, it's a, well, I don't know exactly how to say it, but it was uh, a farm had a big old white house. We lived in. We had there were two tobacco barns side by side. We turned that into our house, and the, between the tobacco barns we built our steps upstairs. And my my brothers were in one. Uh, bedroom I was in the other i couldn't stand up in my my bedroom all over because of slanting roof, but when it rained, it was fantastic because of tin roof,
0: oh yeah, I'm sure and, it was loud,
1: yeah, and you know we had chickens and horses and all that kind of stuff out there, and even today, the big old uh the 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 concrete gym outside gym is still there okay and uh but the rest of the buildings have sort of deteriorated but uh Camp Wilson. P.O. Wilson had owned the Pilot Mountain before the Beasleys, which is before the state bought it. And uh, we brought had you know numerous basketball coaches, uh, Press Maravich, his dad of Pete Maravich. Uh, he was a counselor out there at one time. There were several uh, Duke athletes that were out there, coaches. It was pretty cool. And uh, so it was a camping experience. And, and then from, uh, from Pilot Mountain, when they consolidated the schools here, my dad did not get the job at, at East Surrey High School. So we actually moved to uh, Gastonia, where we lived for a year, and dad was the executive physical education director uh, for the Gastonia YMCA. So I actually graduated from Frank L. Ashley High School. I went to three high schools. Okay, Freshman Pilot Mountain, sophomore and junior East Surrey High School, and then senior Gastonia, Frank L. Ashley High School, which is now Ashbrook, okay, in Gastonia, and then we moved back to Palo Mountain. <laughs> well, it
0: sounds like you've uh, lived a little bit of everywhere around here, right? So, it sounds like you i mean, being around coaching and football and stuff, growing up forever. I mean, I mean, your your middle child is now a football coach, right? Right, and he—I mean, you think he's a, a chip off the old block or? Generational. I mean, I mean, I'm sure through the generations, when your dad was a coach, you've been coaching for years, and now that you're one of your uh, children is coaching, I mean, I'm sure you could probably speak to the different styles of football and how football and the sport has changed throughout the year. I mean, not necessarily even the sport itself and the types of offense and defense, but the athletes too. I mean. You, are you seeing a? I I mean it, maybe in the professional level sure there's a big difference maybe in athletes between then and now but I mean do you think high school athletes are more focused now are they better now than they were years ago and I mean do you, you, you get any idea why that could be
1: well the whole sporting world is changing drastically and uh the influence of money uh, Back when we played, it was, I'm going to be a man. You know, I mean, that, it's rough in your face. Knock them down, that kind of stuff. Uh, we didn't do the off-season work they do now, the specialization. Mm-hmm. You went from one sport to another. You played football. you Then you went to basketball. Then you went to baseball. Then you went on vacation. And then you came back and went to football. And, uh, I mean, there weren't many of us that did any training any kind. I remember running up and down some hills in Pilot Mountain when I was at East Surrey, you know, to get somewhat in shape. Uh, then later on, uh, when my brothers came along, they actually lifted weights. But uh, we didn't concentrate on anything like that. Uh, today, wow, it's uh, – I don't know exactly how to say this politely, but uh, kids specialize a lot. Mm-hmm there's an entire industry out there between the high school and the colleges that promotes specialization, right? Trainers, publicists, so-called recruiters, uh, travel ball like crazy. Um, and every parent wants, to, wants to give their ch- child a chance to succeed. Sometimes it's the parent's dream, not the child.
0: Well, I can understand that.
1: And, uh, you don't have the loyalty like you used to have in the com- from communities. Uh, kids, uh, Parents will move their kid around from one place to another. They get mad at the coach, not playing the right position, suddenly presume they're somewhere else. Right. Uh, and the,
0: I'm the, sure everybody thinks their kid is the next star quarterback, right? Yeah, I mean, you
1: played offensive line for me. I mean, I don't have any parents come to me and say, I can't wait for my kid to play offensive line. I can't right. wait for him to have to pump iron all the time and bleed a little bit and have that dirty uniform. And never get in the end zone, never get his name in the paper. I can't yep. wait to be an offensive lineman. The offensive line is like the working class. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. like a little more glory, like to get, like get paid a little bit better. Like to get some publicity every now and then. But they know what their job is. And if, if they don't do the job, you don't dance in the end zone. That's right. That's just the way it is. But uh, the athletes are definitely uh, faster, stronger, more explosive, uh, it's, it's amazing the stuff that we do now off season continually uh, to make our athletes uh, better athletes.
0: You think that's good for them developmentally or, um, you know, turning young men into
1: adults? That's a great question. It's, it's sort of sad when I look back sometimes. The highlight of a kid's life is when he was 17 years old scoring a touchdown against a rival the highlight of your life. Are you serious? But, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a combination of things. I think that you have to uh,
0: – I mean, everybody talks about the glory days, and right. most of the time the glory days consist of what
1: what high school was like. Right. And, and when you talk to a lot of young people, or not young people anymore, but they remember not necessarily how many games they won as much as the bus trip the time in the weight room, the time they'll run up down those stairs, the, the the journey. Yeah that they well, went well, I mean that's
0: the probably the last real time in their life too that they didn't have any I I mean, you know, there's obviously some exceptions, but any real responsibilities. I mean, you know, go to school, hang out with your friends and you know, even when you go to college to some extent you have more responsibilities where some kids that go straight to work. You know, it's not. I mean, it's not the glory days anymore. It's oh yeah, you know, real life hits you <laughs> in the hits you in the mouth.
1: Yeah, and that's and that's uh, what we try to do. Uh, uh, my first year at, at South, we used to have, we had Macho Mondays, and we would teach them something different. I had an assistant coach who took the whole team out and showed them how to change a tire on a car, mm-hmm. how to charge a battery. Uh, my wife insisted we teach kids how to talk on the phone. And say, yeah, man, you know, that kind of stuff.
0: I mean, that sounds, those seem like, I mean, trivial type skills that most people take for granted, but are unfortunately not widely possessed anymore. No,
1: The the fun one was teaching them how to tie a tie. Right. I mean, even at our banquet, I got my captain up there and he showed them how to tie a tie. It was pretty cool. Right, right. So there's, there's a lot of things you can learn in high school sports. And, um, but but the the athletes are better than they've ever been. They're getting much better instruction than they've ever gotten. Um, the technologies are, golly, I mean, it's just it's just amazing. I mean, I I come from a time when my first years at Mad Air High School and in Alex Gibbs, I was the gopher. Go for this. Go for that. I was the one that had to take the uh, sixteen millimeter film down to WXI sit in the basement until 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning until they developed that. Had to have it back on my head coach's front porch by 8 o'clock the next morning. Goodness. So he could he'd start looking at it. Today, heck, fire. We just upload right the, the game. Uh, we got uh, the people have money have an end zone camera and a sideline camera. Wow, okay. Like south, we only have a sideline camera. North Stokes only has a sideline side camera. But, uh, you know, the – the folks that have more financial support in high school have better technologies. I mean, we even some teams even have that iPod on the sideline, and they can just tell their kids, you know, this this is what you did last play. You're supposed to be taking your zone step to the right, and you didn't shoot your hand in the right place, whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, and that's that's uh, you see that everywhere. The haves and the have-nots. The the people who have more more resources than those who don't. So you taught. You taught civics
0: and, like, government-type education, and I'm sure some of that stemmed from a lot of your experience in the legislature. As a teacher throughout the years, could, can you make some sort of um, analysis against maybe the focus on sports and not so much focus on education? Have you
1: seen? Well, it, I, I found out that. they don't... focusing on sports to the detriment
0: of some of their education?
1: Well, here's the kicker. <clears throat> to be – to be eligible to play, you got to pass three courses Right, the last semester. It used to be four, but it's three because we've, we're on, you know, semester system now and stuff all year long. So the kids that play high school sports make better grades than those adults that don't play high school sports. I mean, I, I, uh,
0: I think that's probably something people would be interested in hearing uh, because I would think that that's probably not widely known.
1: Well, I think the only – two groups in the high school that follow students around to make sure they get to class on time, make sure they're doing the right thing, are coaches and the ROTC people. Right. And it, it, it's just a it's a, if you want to win, your kid's got to be eligible. If he's got to be eligible, he's got to go to class, got to be there on time. But here again, since you were there, schools have changed drastically. Drastically. Uh, they have what's called early college.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, that's real good, but it also has changed the whole concept of school. You know, I have kids that are on the football team that never on campus. Right. So they they don't see people. I mean, there's a certain experience that you need in high school, interacting with people every day in the hallway, how to act, how to behave, how to be on time, get in your seat, raise your hand, all all those things you need to do in in society. But – they're not on campus at, like they used to be, and and I, I think sometimes somebody, either the general assembly, the governor, or the state board of education, define what is the high school experience, where does high school begin and end, and then, it, it's it, like I said, things have changed so much now. You got charter schools, homeschooling. Uh, it's just it's just uh it's it's a different game than what it used to be when we first got into it. Right
0: how do you think that with this past year with the pandemic and kids been staying at home or learning from home have have you do you think i mean you're you're not teaching currently right no I, i'm i'm not i don't and so maybe maybe it's probably not as you may not know exactly um but i mean you you probably can tell though have you seen behavioral differences or um emotional, psychological differences in kids now that they had to stay home for so long? Maybe they weren't used to it. Maybe they weren't mentally ready for, you know, some sort of drastic change, like staying at home through the pandemic. Uh, I mean, have you
1: noticed some things like that, playing football? The first thing you notice is I hope that the pandemic is going to make government respond to some of our basic needs. When we had the Great Depression in the 30s, Franklin D. Roosevelt and the Congress put electrical lines down our dirt roads in Surrey County so that farmer could go into his house, pull that string down in the middle of his living room, and have light. Okay? So, what do we need to do in rural areas like Surrey and Stokes County? They need the internet.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I had players that did not have the internet. Mm. Now, the school system did a fabulous job of having hotspots and trying, but the, but the government needs to, needs to, if you want to give people a chance to see, to succeed, you've got to give them the internet, somehow have exposure to that. So that's one thing. Now, what did I see? I, I, maybe I'm being too critical, but uh, it's easy to, it was easy for some of the kids to turn that monitor off. Or if you're taking a virtual class, you check in and then you go do what you want to do. Uh, the lack of accountability, mm-hmm. the, the the allowing kids to be lazy. I mean, if your parents have got to go to work, right, and they're leaving you there at home, and maybe you've got a sibling that you've got to help too. I mean, it's it's. Uh, it's not like being in school where the teacher can look at you straight on and make sure that you're doing your work. Uh, it, it hurt us academically badly right. and mentally. Uh, yeah, big impact. I mean,
0: I'm sure being a high school football coach, you're you're getting kids at you know crossroads in their life. I'm sure half of your job is probably psychologist at the same time, right? I mean, kids have external situations, but they still. Want to play football, and, you know, it, it, probably a lot for some of those kids to have to work through some things at home that, you know, may not necessarily manifest itself outside and playing football. So being at East Surrey for so long, I know you had some short stints at Mount Airy, and we'll just act like those necessarily didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to anybody from Mount Airy. Uh, what's it like going from um, your – I guess we'll call it retirement from East Surrey and moving to South Stokes. I mean, what's been the hardest thing about going from a program where I mean you still live here in Pilot Mountain and have been a part of the East Surrey community for so long? I mean, what's it like? How, what's what's the hardest adjustment that you're having to make
1: moving to South Stokes? Uh, realizing that I'm getting older. That's that's you know I'm I'm very lucky to stay healthy. Okay, and to have have a understanding family, especially my wife. I mean, when you're coach, you're on call 24-7. And uh, without a supportive family, you're nothing. So I've been very fortunate in that regard. Uh, But I I told someone the other day at Food Line, I said, I felt like I'm back at East Surrey in the 70s, but I don't have the same speed uh, on the athletic field. Uh, That's good. You're excited. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm pumped. Uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, South does not have a uh, little league football program. We're trying to get that started. Great people over there. Trying to get that started. Uh, we're we're doing all kinds of things to try to create a, a stronger culture. Tailgate parties. let have some fun. Have a band in the parking lot. You know, those things we did at East Surrey 30, 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it took it took a long time. I mean, when I went to East Surrey in 1977, I came, I, I came out of Wake Forest in 68. Went to – I was going to be a basketball coach. I don't know if knew that or not. So well, I didn't know that. Yeah, I was a walk-on basketball player at Wake Forest. Okay. I couldn't – my vertical was about three inches, but I still <laughs> I still, you know, could shove and push around and, right. and scrap. So uh, I was a walk-on basketball player, which back in those days you had freshmen and then freshmen didn't play varsity. So we had five scholarship players on our freshman team and had tryouts, and, and I made the team. And we traveled, and we'd play at six in the varsity at, at eight. And, uh, I mean, I remember going down to uh, – Bones McKinney was our varsity basketball coach at Wake, and we were playing at Carolina. And uh, there was an official called Lou Bello, who was very uh, uh, flamboyant, to say the least. And so one of the Wake Forest cheerleaders had his big megaphone in the corner and was sort of hollering – at the official for a call, and the the bellow goes over and takes the, the the megaphone from the cheerleader and throws it back, uh, you know between the stands. <laughs> Bones goes and gets the megaphone, hands it to the cheerleader, and stands between Bellow and the cheerleader. And at, when when we played at Carolina, the the freshman basketball team, us of course we we had to wear a tie and everything. Right, we sit behind the bench because Carolina. Inevitably, would put their football team behind the visitor's bench to oh, harass yeah. them, which was pretty smart. Yeah. So when it called out, we had to stand up. But but uh, so I came out of Wake Forest and uh, went to Mount Air High School, Got had a great experience there, thought I was going to be a basketball coach. The basketball coach up there retired. I didn't get the job. I was all ticked off. I went to grad school at Appalachian, 71, 72. That's when I got involved in politics. Okay. 'Cause I worked I, I volunteered for Terry Sanford, which we'll talk about maybe later. But I, when I, I I came out of uh out of Appalachian in seventy two and almost went to West Charlotte, uh, where they were having racial situations at the time, but I I didn't really care. Mm-hmm. I wanted to coach football. But went back to Mount Airy and then uh, the the situation he served was not good. I mean they they were getting annihilated. I remember I was at Mount Airy we actually shortened the game in the second half of East Surrey because we were so far ahead of them. Ouch. So uh, so uh, when the when the East Surrey situation opened, uh, I went and got an interview. I didn't even know what the salary was. didn't care what the salary was. And so uh went to East Surrey in 77. They'd had like seven straight losing seasons. The year before, there were maybe like 19, uh, 19 players on the team, no JV. Uh, the helmets had not been reconditioned. There was no money in the pot. Uh, yeah, I remember taking the hose into the into the locker room and trying to wash it down, and found out the high spot in that locker room is in the middle where the drain is. Oh my goodness! So, so I mean, you were there. You, you dressed there. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, so uh, we had some great athletes: uh, Doug, Ray, Barry, France, uh, John, David, uh, Sean Hampton. Uh, uh, Robbie Hampton, uh, Anthony Alderman, um, you know Joe East, uh, Donnie Terrell, uh, Marty Davidson, uh, some, a lot of good players, and, and we we won. We had a winning season. Yeah. So,
0: so, so if you had to name one moment in your career where you'd like to do over. Maybe there was um, a player that you could have helped differently or maybe there was a time or a situation that could have been handled differently. If you had one moment that you could go back and change,
1: what would it be? I think sometimes I would spend too much time on the troubled athlete and not spend enough time on the kid who was working his butt off all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and uh, But you don't know that until later on. Right. I mean, you don't really know the impact whether you've helped people out until ten years later. Mm-hmm. So it's enjoyable to win ball games, but ultimately, what have you actually done to to help kids through sometimes very difficult times in their lives? Right.
0: I mean, it sounds like you've also had a lot of support from your family. Um, your dad was a coach, and I know your brothers both helped coach, and um, it's probably been very helpful to have you know family and. I mean, obviously, close friends and stuff helped throughout the years. I mean, it sounds cool. like you've had a great support supporting cast throughout this.
1: My brothers, as you know, are twins, mm-hmm. and they both were good athletes. And so when we got into this thing, it was more like a family affair. Matter of fact, you know, we had like three or four unfit seasons at East Surrey uh, 20 years ago. Um, and during that time, I had one brother coaching the little league. One brother coaching the middle school and I coach the high school. Right. So when we got together for Sunday after church or something and talking, we talked about fullback trap, who the next quarterback is going to be. Well, that's great, though. Alignment. I mean,
0: there's some continuity of perhaps program and offense and defense that you all could scheme together. And yes. then, I mean, by the time mm-hmm. you're varsity players, juniors and seniors in high school, I mean, this, you're not learning anything new. Now we're just executing
1: it like right. we need to be. Right, exactly. Exactly, and all that's paying off, you know. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a culture, of course. If the the parents participate, now they want their children to participate, and so that's – you know, that's it, – it's an ingrained thing over a period of 40 years in, in the East Surrey community, I think, and same with Mount Airy. Right. So,
0: so what's it like uh, being the high school c- coach for yeah. South Stokes, being in the same conference with the East Surrey and going into the stadium that they have named – After you. I mean, you're playing in your – I mean, that's your house. They're playing in your – you're playing in your stadium just on the wrong sideline.
1: Well, I thought about the wrong sideline thing, and uh, when I first went to East Surrey, it was the right sideline. They switched home sides. Oh, right, right. Because we had the concrete seats. That was the home side. The other side, you would not believe the puny little seats that used to be sitting over there. And now they've built up that side and they move. So – you know, a lot of emotion. Uh, my departure from East Surrey was not a, not a smooth one, was not kind. Right. Uh, I didn't retire. They they told me, uh, and I may be telling you something that most people don't realize. I mean, when they called me in, they told me that they had made a – that they had a new policy at East Surrey, that the head coach had to be on the faculty. And I wasn't on the faculty. So and now I don't know whether policy exists, but – who wants to go back and fight that war again? I mean, it is what it is, and so uh, you know, being at South, uh, we 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 struggle in getting a number of kids out, and uh, but it's 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 sort of cool. I mean, I it's I mean, it sounds like a, a good I'm challenge. It. I'm enjoying. I, mean, it. I think and
0: the South from what I understand, the folks and at South Stokes are, I mean, happy to have you.
1: Well, I'm. Uh, I'm lucky that they wanted this old guy to walk on the sidelines. That's what I feel about. It. They, they right. do have a gator that I can get around. To. Well, there you go. Okay. They, yeah, so it's it's, it's pretty. and South Stokes was a four A school. I mean, it's a big facility, a big facility. Right now, they haven't spent the county hasn't spent as much money repairing that facility as they should.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it's it's a there's a lot of good stuff there.
0: Okay. So tell me a little bit about your time at Wake Forest. I mean, you said you, um, you were a freshman on the basketball team and played in, the, I guess, in the ACC. What else did you
1: participate in at Wake Forest? Well, uh, I was in a fraternity. Okay. And uh, I, uh, my grades were not the best. I had to go to summer school one year. And, and I'll, I'll tell you a little story that uh, I was in summer school and I was still trying to do the, the recreation job here in Pound Mountain. Because you would not believe how low the tuition was then. I mean, my I'm, first. I'm certain that I would not believe it being is that wake,
0: I, I just recently paid
1: my student loans off. Wake is, what, seventy, eighty thousand 80000 a year now? Yeah. I think, not sure, I think my tuition per semester was $750. Wow. I mean, I, I was at Gastonia Ashley. I was in the Moorhead uh, Scholarship Competition. And I got a scholarship for six hundred dollars from some—I hate to say—I I forgot who it was, but some group in Ash in, uh, Gaston County mm-hmm. as the best non-scholarship athlete. How I got that, I have no idea. But it was six hundred dollars. So I and, and I really was a, was a Duke fan. I wanted to go to Duke. Oh, I'm sorry yeah, to hear that. That's terrible. I wanted to go to Duke, mm. but I got admitted to Wake and to Carolina, and I decided to go to Wake. And uh, so.
0: Is this one? This was Wake Forest in Winston
1: Salem. Right. This right. was not. I don't. Go, I don't go back that far. I don't okay. go back to being in, in, in Wake Forest. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I had having been in Pilot Mountain. My best friend was a guy named Larry Wall when we were growing up, and Larry Wall was a big Wake Forest fan. We went to several Wake Forest basketball games because he had tickets, and so you know, I was always a Duke fan. He was always a Wake fan. And, and then I go to Wake Forest, and, and, and I w- went out for the freshman basketball team. I was in a fraternity, Lambda Chi Alpha. Uh, matter of fact, uh, there are five of us now. We're all 75 years old, and we have Zoom meetings every two weeks. Uh, we're, we were fraternity brothers, Mike and Steve Royster, who are lawyers here in Surrey Oh, County. yeah. Uh, Mike Queen, retired Baptist minister down in Wilmington. And Carl Tucker, who runs Tucker Lumber Company down in Payson, South Carolina, and we've stayed in contact. We used to go fishing together. It's incredible, and it's because Mike and Steve are in the legal business, Carl's a big, big uh, business guy who makes contributions to Wake, and then Mike uh, gives us the religions religious side. Plus, he's on the board of trustees at Wake, so we 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 discuss a lot of stuff. But uh, while at Wake Forest. Uh, one of the guys I played basketball with, David Pugh, I think retired in the eastern part state as a superintendent, said, uh, let's go be cheerleaders. He said, three cheerleaders flunked out. I said, I'm not going to be a cheerleader. Are you kidding me? I mean, he said, great way to be, meet women. We get to travel around. There you go. I said, okay, okay that makes makes a little bit different. So, So I was a cheerleader for a year. Didn't do anything as far as stunts or that kind of stuff. But just had fun. I mean, uh, okay, went to Maryland. Went. Stu- I mean, went to all over the place. Virginia Tech, Duke, Carolina. I mean, just had had a lot of fun with it. Huh? I, I, I remember we were riding. We were in Maryland, College Park, going to the football game, and we were in a dadgum convertible. And we're sitting on the convertible, and this guy in the in the line, the crowd, you know, a lot of traffic. He's on a motorcycle, and he's looking with our cheerleaders, and. Ran right in the back of a car in front and fell over. It, was, it was like it was it was fun I died laughing it was funny I mean it's a lot of stories it was it was a lot of fun but uh so uh did you know, your brothers give you any grief for oh, being they a cheer they always give me grief I, you know, I could do anything they give me grief but <laughs> it was it was a pleasurable social event
0: right so so you went to graduate school at Appalachian and that's where you got into politics. I'm assuming that's kind of what prompted you. I mean, you spent 20 years as a North Carolina representative, right, in the General right. Assembly. I mean, what prompted your interest in the politics from Appalachian? I remember going
1: to the library at App, and, and this is back when you used to go to the card, files, index, whatever, to look up information, and finding articles and read about Terry Sanford. Terry Sanford's going to run for president and found out that Terry Sanford supported education, even encouraged and pushed taxes to pay teacher salaries, and he created the community college system. Okay. He was very enlightened at that time. He had, he had given the seconding speech at the Democratic Convention for uh, uh, John F. Kennedy, a southern governor. Wow. So he was going to run for president. And the other Democrat that was running was George Corley Wallace, the governor of Alabama, and I thought he was a segregationist. And so I just didn't think that's who we wanted as president of the united states so i decided to volunteer for terry sanford so i called the people at at, at uh, sanford's headquarters and they put me in contact with somebody else and what are you doing what do you want to do working with talk or go, go back to surrey i said i want to go back to surrey county so i traveled back and forth and i and there were t- kids i taught it at manor high school I was no longer teaching anymore i contacted them I, t- I talked to several teachers we put together a small organization and uh I remember writing a letter to the uh, winston some Journal in favor of Terry Sanford because they said Wallace is going to kill him everywhere. Well, Wallace did win the state, but ten counties, including Surrey, went for Terry Sanford. And so, man, that's pretty cool. So I got back. I went back to Manor High School teaching. And uh, this was a part of the, you know, the Watergate backlash. You know, Watergate hit in 73, and so uh, – Everybody in the county had voted Republican in 72 because of Nixon. And then Watergate hit, and then it reversed. So uh, I was in a – I got railroaded. I got told to come to a meeting for the young Democrats. The family was on about eight people there. And they voted for me. They made me the president. Why the he say? I didn't want to be the president. Why the he say? But I got roped into that, and that put me on the Democratic Executive Committee. For the county, so we go to a meeting and they're trying to find someone to run uh, for the state house. And so I, I said, Henry Ridenauer, our, our former minister in Pilot Mountain, Methodist minister, he ought to run. The guy's good. He had been a county commissioner. And and so Henry Ridenauer was in that meeting, and so was Carol Gardner, a lawyer and matter. And they said, Don, why don't you run? I said, Look at me. I got a Fu Manchu <laughs> hair down on my <laughs> collar. I got no money, no time. I can't run. Yeah. Well, that sort of planned the seed, And uh, so I, I did run. There were, there were uh, back in those days, the district had five counties, Stokes, Surrey, Allegheny, Ash, and Watauga, big district, three mm-hmm. seats. And there were already three Democrats that were well-known. And so when I got into it, I made the fourth and created the primary. And... Uh, we, I organized uh, former students, and and uh, we had uh, meetings repeatedly. Uh, we put over a hundred kids on the streets, uh, on the at the polls. Uh, I'd meet with them and give them the little funny hats and the bumper stickers, and I said, "Listen, you go and talk to these people. If they say something bad or ugly, you say thank you very much and go on to the next one. Don't worry about it. Half these people are going to say bad things. That's just the way it is." And, you know, you tell them they got three votes years after one if they, you know, sort of poo-poo what you're saying. So uh, we organized, had meetings and all kinds of stuff. Even we got three or four kids that I had coached. When I was at Appalachian, I did a graduate assistantship uh, at the high school. I, I taught third and fourth periods. The last two periods of the day I taught at Wataka High School and coached their ninth-grade football team, their ninth-grade basketball team. So I got to know some people. Two or three of those kids volunteered. Matter of fact, they didn't get to start on their Friday night Wataga High School football game because they laid out of practice on that Tuesday to help me in the campaign. Now, I didn't even know that, mm. but that was that's pretty cool when you look back at it. So you ran won, and then I guess
0: you kept winning. Um, what, what about? I mean, you retired from the General Assembly several years ago. I mean, you, you've run in a couple of elections since then, right? And I mean, what what else have you ran for successfully or unsuccessfully
1: in the past couple well, of years? Well, uh, we had a house basketball team. And a pretty cool thing, one of the guys from – we played South Carolina every year, every other year. One of the guys, major ball players for them, was a guy named David Beasley who was in the house. David Beasley ended up being the governor of South Carolina, has now received – some kind of major award, Nobel or something, because he heads up the UN food distribution or something. He he lives in Italy now. Wow. But that was David Beasley, who was our their point guard. Okay. He played basketball. And while involved in that, uh, I realized one night we were, we were practicing after the session at, at Peace, my chest was hurting. So uh, I end up uh, having to have open heart surgery. Mm. So I was 47 years old, had quadruple bypass, and uh, that set me back. Uh, I had been uh, – let me back up. Uh, I was involved in the uh, revolution in the House in 1988. Okay. Okay. Do you want to hear about this? I, I, I'm <laughs> not sure what it is. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, back in those days, there were more Democrats than Republicans in the House. And we we used to uh, alternate the speaker, like the speaker would be from the east for two years, the west for two years, and because the the governorship was only for a four-year term mm-hmm. when the state changed the constitution to the governor being able to be there for two consecutive terms, because you normally, although they're not connected, you normally elected the lieutenant governor. The same at you know the same kind of terms one four year term now it's two four year terms, so the lieutenant governor suddenly is over the senate for a longer period than simply four years. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Liston Ramsey, the Democrat from Madison County, stayed as the speaker of the house. So that sort of kept a lid on the talent uh, in the, in the house. You, you you know you're either in leadership or you're not. Right, And so uh, there was like two terms there, and there was a lot of restlessness. I mean, a ton of restlessness. And there were like, oh, I don't know how many meetings I went to, maybe maybe a dozen. But the Speaker's still elected, right? Right, by the membership. A dozen Democrats we would meet. We were disgruntled. Well, it ended up being that in, in 1988, right after the election, we started meeting and serious for for our what we did, we had secret meetings all over the place. Randolph County, Cumberland County, and uh, I, I remember uh, I was at East Surrey and got a call from a Rodney News Observer, and uh, you didn't have cell phones back then. I got called to the office. I'm talking this. Uh, he said uh, Grapevine says that you're involved in this revolution. And I said, well, the grapevine doesn't come to Pilot Mountain. I'm more interested in who was elected to the House uh, that can play basketball for a basketball team. Well, he, he, I mean, he took that. I didn't have to lie to him or anything. He just took it <laughs> and just forgot about why he called me. Right. But I was all the way up to my ears in this revolution. Ends up that uh, 20 of us uh, joined 54 Republicans. So on the first day we got sworn in in 89, we voted for Joe Mavretic as the Speaker of the House. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it felt like all the – I mean, I got calls from some of the most influential Democrats and said, you know, you are cutting your throat. And I said, well, that's what i got to do. I said, you know, let me back up a second. I was on appropriations committee, and you got five, uh, five subcommittees, and we put together our section of the state budget. Now, remember, the state budget must be balanced, not like the feds. It's balanced, and it's in detail. Well, Just quickly, how can the feds get away with an unbalanced budget? Because we, the voters, don't give a flip. We don't pay much attention to it because we're all in debt up to our ears. Well, there you go. All right, carry on. That's just my opinion. Anyway, um, <laughs> and most people don't even realize that. Yeah. They don't pay much attention. So the state has to have a balanced budget. So you one side will – the, the governor puts together a budget presents you to the General Assembly, it goes through the General Assembly process, you tear it apart, put it together, one side passes it, sends to the other side, the other side, and two sides have to finally get together. Well, what would happen? There'd be what we call the Gang of Eight. Four from the House, four from the Senate, and they'd sit back there and put the budget together. Well, you know, if the budget's back in then, say, $15 billion, they're probably only going to argue about five or $600 million, but they're putting the the budget together. right? I mean, I remember sitting, core. I remember sitting on the floor of the legislative office building on the weekend, waiting for someone to come out from that back door meeting. I handed them a sticky note saying Surrey community college needs X number of dollars to build a building. Now I don't know which building it was, but we got the dadgum building because I sat on the floor back there and kept passing that note in, in and out, you know, cause that's where the, the final details mm-hmm. anyway. In in eighty eight, when the full when the budget came to the full appropriations committee, I think the final straw was there was no index. We had two hours. The bill's one hundred fifty two hundred pages long, and it's, it's those budget provisions that how is the money going to be spent? That's where things happen. And even today, it's gotten back to that process. And so after a while, we said you know. We don't have anything to do with this. We're, we're just elected like anybody else, but we don't have any, any say-so. The same people keep doing the same thing for themselves. So we had a rebellion, and uh, we elected Joe Maffredic, and, and Joe Brilliant, uh, former Marine pilot uh, down Edgecombe County, and uh, he led the charge. And there were, and I got elected as, as the uh, chairman of the appropriations committee, and and that was the there, to best of my knowledge, there's never been one person to chair the appropriations committee other than me. That one term, one term, and so for two years I was by myself mm-hmm. entirely. And perhaps one of the good things I did, um, that was the only time a teacher, an active classroom teacher, chaired the appropriations committee. You know, they're still arguing about salaries.
0: Oh, well, I'm sure okay. that that's been going on forever.
1: My two years, six and a half percent salary increase across the board each year for teachers. Wow. Now, I remember it was late one night in that first year, and uh, I don't know, midnight, one o'clock, there weren't many of us there. We're trying to put together some, some loose ends, and the, the Senate passed to Sam Hunt, who was our finance chairman go talk to Diamond see if he'll get off his salary increase business and so the guy so sam comes on, i said no i said there's never going to be a high school teacher or a teacher chairing the appropriations committee it's six and a half percent this year and next year well you never put your salary increase in the second year of the budget right it's very flexible i said i ain't changing that's what it's going to be sure enough that's what it was now i was not good enough politician to, to get anything out of that i mean i didn't come home and you know, beat my chest and point. Yeah, I'm the man. Oh right. And so teachers didn't really, I didn't get much political push out of that. Right. But I felt really good that that's something we did. But uh, now after after that was over, uh, that one term, then the coalition broke up, and uh, I, I was the uh, co chair of the appropriations committee with uh, Martin Nesbitt from Buncombe County under Speaker Dan Blue. And Dan Blue is now in the state senate. He's from Wake County. And uh, Martin has passed away. He, he was a fantastic uh, legislator from, from Buncombe County, a lawyer. Uh, but, and then I did not run in 94. Mm-hmm. I'd had open-heart surgery. And I decided, you know, I can't – I'd given up my football. Then Mount Airy came and got me again in 91, so I went to Mount Airy to coach up there. Mm-hmm. But at that point, I had three young children teaching school, coaching football, and having a leadership position in the General Assembly. Not enough hours in the day for that. So I decided, you know, that's – and th- and then I did run for Superintendent of Public Instruction in 96, got killed in the Democratic primary, uh, spent over $40,000 of my own money. Mm. Went across the state, fantastic experience. I mean, golly, dog, it was just really cool. Mm-hmm. Spoke to a lot of different folks. Uh, I remember there was an uh, Columbia Indian uh, elder in his driveway at his, his, uh, in Robeson County. Went out and talked to him with, with other elders around him. Uh, went to a uh, black forum down at, uh, at uh, Pitt in Pitt County, one in Durham County. Spoke to teachers up in Haywood County. Uh, I got into uh, – I, I didn't have any money. I mean, I just didn't have any money, and I was by myself. And so uh, I was not Jim Hunt's boy. Jim Hunt had already gotten his guy that I didn't really want smart enough to realize. So Mike Ward ends up being the superintendent. But I had a good experience. I gave. I gave up all my coaching and everything to go out and do this. It ends up being okay because – did I really want to live in Raleigh? I mean, I still got to live in Pilot Mountain. My right. kids went to East Surrey, played sports. We all had great experiences here. So, you know, things happen for a reason. Mm-hmm. So what, I mean, aside from
0: teaching... The civics class, and my assumption is that you were in the civics just because of your experience with the General Assembly. I mean, did you teach any other subjects? Is that always oh, yeah. what your, uh, which, was that your real passion and your calling for teaching was in the civics uh, just as because of your interest in politics? Not really.
1: Uh, I was a U.S. history teacher. That's why I started out in Mount Airy, U.S. history. I did teach a civics class up there. and uh, Back in those days, I think it was called Economic, Legal, and Political Systems. And uh, we used to, you know, I mean, I remember setting up a scenario where uh, we had a trial and the, the, uh, I had three students, if I can remember how this worked, had three students walk by an open door looking into the oratorium. And if you look into the oratorium at Manor High School, from that door, you're not going to see it very well because there's, there's another light coming through window there. So it sort of blurred. I had two students in there. A man, a girl, and a boy. And I had them arguing. And then the, the girl goes running out by these other three students who don't know what's going on. Running out. And she has stabbed the guy in there. So we're setting us up for a trial. So I had a student that was a prosecutor, a judge, defense attorney, and these three witnesses. And I did same the same scenario in each class. I think I had three three or four classes, maybe five. Same scenario. The one thing that it proved was that the girl that was the best looking was found innocent. <laughs> and, and, and and I I would have other used to have study halls right, and I'd get twelve students from the study hall. they would be the jury, and we had a darn trial. And some of these kids were just, I mean, they were spot on. They were they were good. And just let it go. I, I didn't determine anything. It was pretty interesting.
0: So you think you could pull that off today? Uh, perhaps. Were your three your three witnesses? Were they in on the
2: joke? No, they didn't okay? know anything.
1: They didn't know why they're walking down the hallway. And you know, we we used to I felt we used to develop games to let them play. You know, one, one, uh, one class would be the ha- the state house. One would be the state senate. And and our our Congress and and go to the library, look up the congressman. from you're, you're the senator from Montana. You're the senator from Georgia. Now, today's political world is too toxic to do that. Sure. But back then, you know, it was sort of fun. Kids played roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the NCAA tournament, when I was at East Surrey, I signed, uh, for March Madness, I signed each student in my class a team. They had to be the fan of that team, and they – they had to plan their trip if their team was to play in the regional. Certain, they had to plan the trip, how it cost on the airplane, souvenirs, lodging, and could they afford it? Mm-hmm. And then they had to learn about where the arena was, how to get there, and then if their team won, <laughs> they're going to go to the next round, right? And then so I mean, we we and the Jerry. That sounds ma-
0: like pretty interesting games. I'm huh? not certain that those are played. Those uh, I would say thought-provoking
1: games are being played anymore. Well, the best one I had was the gerrymandering game. Okay. Take a seating chart in that class. You got the male party, the female party. You designated somebody as the incumbent. You got 25 seats. Five seats for each of the five representatives. Suddenly... You're going to change that to six representatives. So you give them the seating chart and let them draw lines to favor their political party and keep their incumbents in office. It was great. I mean, they had to fight in each other, and it's just like real, the real world. And right. they understood what
0: gerrymandering was. you still requiring your uh, athletes to sit on the front row of their classes? Yes.
1: Yes. First thing, go in the classroom, sit up, pay attention, sit on the front row, be somebody.
0: I, I will say that that's probably one of the things I remember from having you as a teacher is sitting in front. And I can't always say in college that I sat on the front row, uh, but certainly something that I remember and I believe was, was beneficial. Um, I think it kind of when you're up front and center, you you know you better be paying attention or you're going to get called out on it.
1: And and, and you give the teacher, you know, this person wants to learn. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's body language. Set up. Pay attention. Get ready. Yeah, absolutely. It's life. That is absolutely life.
0: Talk to me, I mean, uh after teaching, you taught for 40 some years, right? 45 I mean, and a half years. 45 and a half years. Loved it. Loved it. What? I mean, why not keep going?
1: Uh <laughs> Good question. Uh, I got tired of the faculty meetings. And the required workshops, I was bad. All the BS that comes with the last five years. Yeah, the last five (laughs) years, I was a pain in the butt to principals because I'd say, What? I got to go to a workshop? Listen, if I'm no good, fire me. (laughs) I mean, really. I mean, uh, and and I I, I taught taught civics, I taught U.S. history, but then they gave me world history too. And uh, that was a new adventure. I mean, you got 10,000 years. What part of it are you going to teach in, in a semester? Sure. Um, I mean, I think history is overlooked now. Sure. Not emphasized in North Carolina. Uh, I don't think people uh, realize the the time spent in the classroom. For instance, we used to have U.S. history. In a uh, let's say, say had six periods in a day, fifty-five minute class, one hundred eighty days U.S. history from beginning to end. Then they changed it. U.S. history is going to be in a semester, so you go down to ninety days, ninety minutes, uh, ninety days, ninety hours, eighty-one hundred minutes, and they they took away the beginning of history. The Constitutional Convention. You teach that in civics, hmm. so you still got it covered. In some school systems, Surrey County teaches civics to sophomores, Stokes County to seniors. That's what needs to be taught. Sophomores are concerned about dating and cars and that kind of stuff. Seniors are getting ready to face the real world. Right? They got to pay taxes, well, and they're they're the closest ones to being able to vote. Yes, yes. But the reason they, that people did the civics class. As sophomores, it was because they figured, well, there's going to be many to drop out when they're 16. So let's hit them all. But they're not ready for that, in my opinion. So anyway, now they've added another course. I think it's called personal finance. Hmm. So that you've got to teach world history, civics, U.S. history, personal finance. And I think they're going to have to decrease the amount of time you're going to be teaching U.S. history to work in this personal finance course. So U.S. history is growing and the time you're used to teaching is decreasing,
0: yeah, my wife and I were having this discussion last night, as a matter of fact How are we to encompass all of the education needed for a lifetime in thirteen years what's what's being left out that these kids need that are turning eighteen and graduating? Who are not going to be, I mean, lifelong students. I, I like to think of myself as being a lifelong learner. We've recently bought a, a set of books called "Great Works of the Western World," which include all of the great books from, you know, Aristotle, Plato, uh, you know, all of the Homer, all of the great works. And I mean, in the in the set, right there's a, a list of like an instruction on how to read this. 50-some volume set over 10 years, and one of the points that they make in there is it's hard to read some of these authors without being in some of their situations. For example, Shakespeare's Macbeth, when he talks about marriage and, you know, some of life's things, it's hard, I think, for kids in their teens to be able to grasp some of the great authors who haven't yet came into their those similar experiences Dante for example in in Inferno I mean he starts that by saying midway through life's journey what are we missing in the current education system that is going to interest these kids in lifelong I mean obviously not everybody's going to be able to or not everybody's going to want to but if you're able to reach some percentage of them and spark that interest in lifelong learning. What what are we leaving out? I mean, as a, a career educator, I can't think of anybody that would know this the answer to this question better. What are we leaving out in the school curriculum now that's gonna spark a lifelong interest in learning?
1: If I had to answer that question, I would be making a bunch of money. <laughs> uh as being a educational consultant of some kind and being a powerful position uh, you know
0: is there? i mean i'm not sure there i'm not sure i would know the answer no, the, I, the, I mean
1: the uh, as, as as i get older i hear people say well they don't teach this in school they don't teach that in school you're right because times have changed and what we used to teach some 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 of the stuff we used to teach is not is not being used anymore so I think it's not necessarily what we teach is, is the atmosphere we teach it in to uh, encourage kids to be curious. And th- Do you think we're
0: encouraging, we're teaching kids to pass tests versus curiosity? Do you think that there's some standardized uniformity that's being applied across the broad spectrum, whereas when you look at a bell curve, for example, right? The greatest distribution is probably what you're going to hit with this standardization, but the kids that are on each end
1: are really being left out by this. Well, I'm going to tell you something, but maybe it's not very popular. We're soft. Well, we're. I, I can't.
0: I can't we, imagine anybody arguing that.
1: Me, we, we are. We're just not tough. I mean. To pass now, you have to make a 60. A 60? Are you kidding me? Instead of raising
0: the bars, and, we're I lowering mean, the bars.
1: In order to make everybody feel good, in order not to be accused of discrimination, uh, and I'm not talking about just black and white discrimination, I'm talking about rich and poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just need to expect more, demand more. And in areas, you have to help kids get there. Mm -hmm. Not everybody, but I remember my last year, a couple years at East Surrey, uh, you've got three grading periods for first semester. And if the kid, I mean, he could just go in my room and breathe and make 10, okay? But we couldn't give him a 10. We had to give him at least a 50. So if he decided the second nine weeks to study, he could bring the 50 up. I reckon that's justified, but I mean, <laughs> I had kids tell me, "Coach, they're going to bring my grade up anyway. Why should I do anything?" Just flat out tell me. And what you know? What, what do you say? And uh, but 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 anyway, I, I think uh, we got to understand that if you won't kids to want to learn you've got to have some dynamic teachers and that may cost you some money sure whether you like it or not i mean brain power just because you're smart doesn't mean you're a good teacher you, you got to be able to communicate and enjoy what you're doing and find find creative ways and be positive and you know some teachers are great with the higher end students, some teachers are great with kids that are are challenged in their life. Period. Right. Uh, you know, so you sort of have to. I mean, if I've always thought it would be interesting if the principal had the opportunity to take the teacher and fit them to the students, instead of taking the students and put them in a class and say you're going to teach this course. I don't know.
0: All right, I've got two final questions for you. One, is do you think that being a career educator, a career high school football coach, and, I mean, really a young man's life coach, in, essentially, and time spent in the legislature,
1: do you feel like you've fulfilled your life's purpose? Oh, wow. Who knows? I mean, you know, you just – You sort of look back and and say, uh, what would I have done differently? Uh, Gosh. I think uh, when I came out of Wake Forest, I applied to go to OCS in the Marine Corps. That was right there in the middle of Vietnam. And my mom and dad said, don't do that. Just teach one year. I sort of always wondered what it would have been if I'd say, nope, I'm going to go to the Marine Corps. I'm going to go to Quantico. I'd already taken the test and everything. And I've always thought, what – you know, how that would have changed. It would have changed things drastically. Sure. You know, if I'd done that. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I've, I've lived a, a blessed life. Oh, my gosh. I've been so lucky. It's unbelievable. So, you know, I, I, don't know. I, I think maybe the one thing would be to spend more time with your children. Uh, I can remember the first time Ashley ran. I got back from Raleigh, and Ashley on Friday afternoon, Ashley ran down the hallway. I said, why don't you start running? What's that about?" I mean, that was just a just a shocking experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the other thing that most folks, as we get older, we don't we don't realize or we don't appreciate the journeys that our friends have taken, and it's 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 golly. You did that? This happened? You I mean just you go through life so dead gum fast. You just don't really appreciate the things around you. You don't live in the moment. Right. Sometimes I tell football players you know, if we win a big game and we've done something, enjoy it. Just sit back and enjoy it. I mean, this this is doesn't happen all the time. Right. But I, you know, it's I don't know, you look back, I spent more time in church probably. Uh, Should I have done more time at home? Probably. So the final question is
0: tell me a little bit about this football helmet you brought in right here.
1: (laughs) Okay. This football helmet. This was worn by Duke University in 1960 in the Cotton Bowl, Arkansas and Duke. Duke won seven to six. And uh, East Surrey didn't have any helmets. So we bought helmets from Duke. So, the first couple of years that we were at East Surrey, we wore these helmets. We were called the Rebels, and we were white and, and blue. And uh, this is a, a, a foam pad on the outside, and it doesn't have suspension on the inside. So, it's a, this helmet was worn in, in the early 60s at East Surrey High School and Duke University.
2: Mm.
0: I'm not certain I'd feel safe wearing that today, <laughs> <laughs> it was tight. Listen, this has been a pleasure. I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of new episodes. Remember to be on the lookout for new episodes at the first of every month. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review and comment on what you like the most. If you know someone who has a good story to tell or suggestions on how to improve, please email us at info at ncretold.com.